The following resource is brought to you by Real Life Community Church in Richmond, Kentucky. We hope you're both challenged and encouraged by this message from Pastor Chris May. The Apostle is writing, I'll remind you, to mainly non-Jewish Christians of the first century who are scattered amongst these Roman provinces throughout northern Asia Minor. These are very pagan, secular communities, and they feel like misfits. They feel, they listen, they don't fit in. Have you ever been somewhere and you just not fit in? This is what they feel 24-7. They're experiencing some level of persecution because of their faith. One of the main themes of this book is the call for Christians to maintain an exemplary testimony, hear me, in a world full of unbelievers. And friends, that is no easy feat. It is difficult, is it not, to live according to the Word of God when we live amongst such a secular people. At work, at the grocery store, everywhere we go, it's full of the world is full of unbelievers, and it is a dark place at times. In this section, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, reminds us that if we're going to keep this type of an exemplary testimony, that we must live blamelessly in four different arenas of our social construct. He begins by talking about civil authority. Those, this would be applicable for us, thinking about those who are in federal and state and city government. We're to, we're to honor our leaders whom God has put in authority. He goes on then in chapter 2 to talk about the workplace. We're to be blameless in our places of employment. Number three, what we're going to discuss today is the family and then Finally, in a few weeks, we'll touch on number four, the church, which he addresses in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Well, today, our, pastor, our passage deals with the smallest unit of God-ordained social structure, namely the family. And look at me. How many know that the family is under attack in this day and age? The family needs help. Amen. So this week and next, we're going to be looking at the relationship mainly between a husband and wife. If you're not married, it's all right. I promise you, you'll still get something out of this message. My wife, Nikki, and I have been married 22 years this coming May. 22 years. Some of you are looking at me funny because you thought, I thought you were 22 years old, right? I know what you thought. <laughs> 22 years of marriage. You learn a lot in 22 years of marriage. Amen. Some good, some not so good. Just in case my wife's listening, the not so good is all my fault. But uh, here, here's, an, in, in honesty, here's, here's what I know. Friends, after 22 years, I, I still don't have it, this husband thing down perfectly. If you do, let's talk after church. I need your help. As a matter of fact, I'll, I'll say this. I want to be the best husband I can possibly be. And men, those of you who are married in here, I hope that is your aim. And hopefully if you're a woman in here, you want to be the best. If you're married, you want to be the best wife you can be. But here's the issue. 
in my own life, I feel a bit unqualified to stand behind this pulpit and teach you on this subject today because I promise you I have not arrived in this area. Okay, Marriage is tough. And I haven't been the perfect husband, nor have I been the perfect father. But listen, can we grow together in this by the Word of God? That's the aim today. Maybe you're here and you feel that same tension. Like you want to be a better husband. You want to be a better wife. You want to be a better father, a better mother. And you try to to, to be a better person in those areas. But listen, you feel perhaps like me sometimes, like you're spinning your wheels that you're not growing. By God's grace today, I pray that we can take a step together in the right direction. The world needs, our country needs, our city needs healthy families. How many believe that? So the great news is this. This makes me feel so good that we are not the first generation to struggle with family relationships. Peter is writing to first century Christians and he has to encourage them in these types of relationships. That being said, we're in 1 Peter chapter 3. It is custom in our church that we stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. So I invite you to stand if you're able. 1 Peter chapter 3. Turn there if you would in your Bible, your iPhone, iPad, eyelids, whatever you got. Um, Let's go there together. Ready? Chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives... Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. This is the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. Would you do something for me as you're seated there, as I'm preaching? Would you just whisper a little prayer for me? Because I'm preaching on wives today, and my wife is liable to walk in here anytime. This is a kind of fearful message, right? But I want to just look what the, at what the Bible says about wives. Number one, if you're taking notes, I want to address the call to submission. The call to submission. That's... Word submission is almost a cuss word in our day and age, is it not? What's Peter mean by this? Look at verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. The word likewise here in this verse connects this section with the previous section, which is all about submission. God is not a God of confusion. He is a God of order. And thus he has established, according to his good purposes and pleasure, order in the world. We see this again going back to chapter 2. God has established civil authorities. Okay, this is a good thing. We ought to honor those authorities. And as much as they do not ask us 
personally to do anything that is contrary to the Word of God. We also looked in chapter 2 at our need to honor our employers, to honor God in the workplace. We have employers and employees for a reason. It's for order. Then we looked at Christ's willingness to submit to the will of the Father a couple weeks ago. Here's what I love. God is asking us to submit to these different relationships. But I love that Jesus is not asking us to do something that He Himself was not willing to do. Because, oh, He humbled Himself. He came to this earth and He committed Himself by submitting to the will of the Father. And friends, He was obedient all the way to the cross. I'm grateful for His submission to the will of the Father. So in this same way that Peter has been talking about, wives, he says, are to honor and submit to their husbands because, here's why, God has ordained the husband to be the leader of the home. Now this has been really misconstrued in the church. So ladies, if you're offended by this message, give me to the end of the service before you throw something at me, okay? This has nothing to do, hear me, nothing to do with value, it has nothing to do with ability. Sometimes I look at the women compared to the men and I go, Lord, why didn't you put them in charge? Right? How, men, how, how many know we need some help sometimes, right? Like, I want you to think about this. Think to, about your employment. If you've ever worked for somebody else, just because you have a boss, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that that boss is more valuable to God than you are. It doesn't even necessarily mean that that boss is more talented than you are. But you submit to that authority because that keeps order. And if you don't keep the order, what happens? It creates chaos. It's a breeding ground for chaos. Submission here, uh, ladies, does not mean that your husband just gets to boss you around. Please don't leave thinking that. It does not mean that life is about him. Oh, to the contrary. We're going to be dealing, by the way, with the husband in a couple weeks. One sermon for each. I promise you that I'm going to play fair, all right? Here's what the Bible calls the husband to do. To love his wife like Christ loved the church. What does that mean? It means that at any moment he is willing to lay down his very life for his bride. This is so interesting. And let me just ask you, ladies, if you have a husband who loves Jesus, treasures Jesus above all things, and if he submits to God, and if he is willing to lay his life down for you, down for you and he treats you like a queen, are you going to have any issue submitting to his godly leadership? No, I've never met a single woman where that's the issue. This doesn't mean, ladies, that you don't get a say in decisions that are made. And by the way, this is not a call for women, all women to submit to all men. It says, wives, submit to your husbands. This is about your husband. One more caveat here. The husband does not replace the Lord's authority. The ultimate authority in your life, ladies, is Jesus Christ. So that means if your husband ever asks you to do anything that is outside of the will of God, that is not in line with the Scriptures, 
then you're to honor the Lord above your spouse. Here's what it means to submit. God has ordained the husband out of his goodness and his wisdom to be the head of the household. Somebody has to be in charge. Essentially, this means that God is putting the weight of that home on his shoulders. That means that he's ultimately responsible to the Lord. For instance, if the children are not raised in the admonition of the Lord, guess who's answering for that first and foremost? The Lord's going to the man for that. I'm not saying that the women aren't going to be held accountable at all. I'm just saying ultimately, ultimately, the man is responsible for that type of leadership. Paul says this same thing. Ephesians 5, 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body as, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Colossians 3.18, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. There it is. Okay. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This is not a license, men, to be harsh with your spouse. This is not a license to be demeaning or degrading or domineering or rule with an iron fist. No, quite the contrary. Children, obey your parents in everything, he says, for this pleases the Lord. So what we see here, and Paul makes it really clear in, in Colossians here, that there is an order in the home. It is the Lord, and then the, the, the husband is submit to the Lord. The whole house is to submit to the Lord. And then the, the husband is kind of the head responsible for that home. The, the wife uh, voluntarily submits to that leadership, and the children submit to mom and dad. And when that order is messed up, again, what do you get? It's chaos. And we see this today. It's just not the women ruling the home. Often it's the kids that are ruling the homes. You talk about messed up. I've been a youth, I was a youth pastor for almost 15 years. And the way I've watched teenagers talk to their parents, I'd have moms and dads showed up and show up in church and I'd say, hey, where's your son? I'll, he doesn't ever want to come. Who's the parent? Tell him to come. He's your child. You're not the child. So the headship of the husband is a God-ordained role meant to bless every member of the family. That's what it's for. It's not meant to be a curse. It's meant to be a blessing. Kathy Keller, in her great book, The Meaning of Marriage, she co-wrote with her husband, uh, Tim. She points that God, out that God created male and female. And our differences are not incidental. She addresses that our differences should not be seen as a superior or as superior or inferior. Did you get that? The differences between male and female should not be seen as superior nor inferior, nor should we get caught up in the specific duties that our current culture may deem are appropriate. She says our differences are meant to complement one another. And it's a beautiful thing when the house will in the home works like the home is supposed to work by God's design. So submission in many cultures has been taken way too far. It's been perverted to where it hurts the family, but that's not the Bible's intention at all. Now this principle can apply to every single marriage, but Peter here 
really particularly brings out the case where a Christian woman may have an unbelieving spouse. This is something we need to talk through. What do you do if you are a godly woman, you're married, and you do not have a believing husband? Look at verse 1 again. Wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word. What's he talking about there? The word there, he means the gospel. There's a connection in previous verses there. In other words, they are not Christian. He goes on to say that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and your pure conduct. You have to understand this. In the first century um, Greco-Roman world, women were not valued in any way, shape, or form. They were seen often as little more than property owned by their husband, there to serve him. And so you can imagine in that kind of a culture, if a woman were to respond to the gospel to be saved, and her husband is not a Christian, this would be like switching religions, kind of a big deal. This kind of individualization did not happen in this culture in the first century. And so a woman really needed to know in this case, how do I respond to my unbelieving husband? Ultimately, how can I win him to the Lord? Because it's not perhaps like it would be today. She had to be very careful. So Peter gives us an idea, and and I hope this is encouraging to you. I know there are are, are probably a couple of, of people here today who you're married to someone who is not a believer, who won't come to church with you. And I hope this encourages you today. Number one, if that is your case, you have the responsibility to stay with your husband. He makes this clear in this text. And then Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 7.13. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and here's, here's this part as well that you need to really pay attention to, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Okay? So if you get saved, you were saved after you're married, and, and your husband's unbelieving, you say, man, this isn't fun being, I want a husband that's going to go to church with me. I, listen, what is your job? As far as the Bible's concerned, it's to love him unconditionally. And it's, if he wants to stay married, if, he, if he's okay with you being a believer and, and wants to stay married, you stay married with the hopes of one day this faith is going to rub off on him and perhaps he'll turn to the Lord. Now, Paul goes on to say, if the unbelieving husband wishes to divorce, this is important, if he abandons you, you don't have to compel him to stay. And, and he goes on to say, my interpretation of this is that he's saying, listen, if that happens to you, ladies, then you're not under that covenant anymore. You're released. You, you're, in other words, you're free to be remarried. So you're supposed to stay if you can, if he's willing to do that. Number two, you're to live in such a way where your attitude and your actions point to the goodness of Jesus Christ. This is true for every single one of us. Like when you're saved, people at work, people at school, wherever you go, people at home, they ought to say, something is different about you. What do you have that I don't have? And then you're able to share the gospel. 
Peter says that wives should conduct themselves in such a way where the unbelieving husband may, without a word, be one to the gospel. Now, don't mistake this verse. This does not mean that the gospel doesn't have to be shared for somebody to be saved. How many have ever heard the saying, this is really popular, always preach the gospel and when necessary, use words? How many have ever heard that? A couple of you, okay. That's not a theologically accurate statement. Words are always necessary when preaching the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. What Peter is saying here is, listen, you don't have to nag your husband. You don't have to be on him all the time. No, let your conduct make the gospel change in you look marvelous. Let your actions and your attitude make Christ look glorious to where it compels him to want what you have. So ladies, this teaching, by the way, is for women who are already married to an unbelieving husband. This is not condoning what we call missionary dating. How many have ever heard of missionary dating? It's when a young lady gets with a, uh, or, or could be work either way, but let's say a young lady meets this boy, right, who doesn't love Jesus. And she says, well, you know, I, I really think if we get together that I'm going to win him to the Lord. That's called missionary dating, right? And the Bible does not condone it. Here's what, it's, here's what the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. You say, does that mean we eat different types of eggs in the morning? No, that's not what it means, all right? It means that if, if you treasure Christ above all things, do not get with somebody who doesn't feel that same way about Jesus. It will cause you a lifelong of problems. If you're in a dating relationship and your man doesn't treasure Jesus Christ, can I tell you what to do? Uh, write this down, ladies. Get your little notepads out. Three letters. R-U-N. Run. All right? Please don't give your boyfriend my address. So wives, here's, here's the bottom line. Submission here is to call, it's a call to honor the husband's God-ordained leadership role in the home. All right? Secondly, the characteristics. That was my longest point, just to, to clarify. The characteristics of submission. Look at verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of jewelry, of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. How many know that wearing appropriate clothing can be really, really important at times? About eight years ago, it was still custom in the church I was in, in Greeley, Colorado, to wear a, a suit and tie. Like, you didn't preach without a suit and tie. And so one particular Sunday, I was preaching, and I was decked out, and at the end of the service, we had a visiting pastor who was there uh, visiting with one of his children. And he comes to me, he was very gracious, he said, hey, pastor, he said, I'd love for you to come and speak at my church in Wyoming. I'd never been to Wyoming at this point. He said, I'd love you to come speak in Wyoming at my church. It's just a small church. And he said, I'm going to be out for a while. And he said, would you, would you be able to fill the pulpit one of these Sundays coming up? I said, oh, Dale, I'd be happy to do that. 
And he says to me before we end that conversation, he says, um, by the way, you don't have to wear a suit when you go preach. Well, being young and knowing it all, I thought, well, he just doesn't know that the anointing is attached to a three-piece suit. I mean, he just didn't get the memo. This had been ingrained in me, right? You got to preach in a suit. And so I didn't heed his advice. I show up at this church on a Sunday morning looking like I just stepped off Wall Street, decked out, and I go in, no joke, this rural community in Wyoming, the deacons are in overalls. What do you think they thought of me? They are probably making jokes of me this morning, all right? I'm just saying. It just happened years ago, all right? I was in the wrong type of clothing. They didn't hear a word. I said, nobody came to the altar that week. They wanted to stay as far away from me as they could. Wearing the proper clothing is important, I believe, but here's what Peter is saying. There's something even more important than what's on the outside, and it's what's on the inside. He's saying, ladies, and by the way, men alike, that's what we should be most concerned with. Now, please, please don't take this verse, as some churches have, to legalistic points. Okay, let me just warn you on this, all right? This does not prohibit wives from taking care of their physical appearance. From styling their hair or wearing jewelry or makeup, this verse has been used way out of context. How many have ever heard it taken out of context? If the barn needs painting, come on somebody, paint it. (laughs) The wife in the Song of Solomon was beautifully adorned and this is seen as a good thing. And if a wife, imagine this, a newly saved wife with an unsaved husband, and she's normally all decked out, looking all fine, and she comes home one day looking frumpy, he says, what happened to you? I got saved today. He's going to want as little as Jesus as poss- of Jesus as possible. If, if you show up looking like you just stepped out uh, off the set of Little House on the Prairie, like he's probably going to run, right, the other direction. This is what Peter is saying. Wives, you shouldn't be, get this, consumed. Consumed with outward beauty. But instead, you should be committed to beautifying what Peter calls the hidden person of the heart. Listen, I'm thankful for the beautiful wife that God has given me. And I'm grateful. My wife goes to great lengths to make herself, not that she has to because she just wakes up beautiful, but... uh, she goes to extreme lengths to, to really, uh, listen, when I come home from work, she freshens up her makeup and she does just these little things that just mean the world to me. Would I love her without doing that? Probably. Uh, I would. <laughs> but, she, she knows that. But here's the thing. She does it. She knows men are visual. She just takes time with herself and I appreciate that. And so, so that's, it's not being prohibited here. We had a, had a lady uh, that was married to one of the pastors that I work for. And her father was a real prominent pastor in Lexington for, for many years. And uh, he used to get so frustrated with her because it took her forever to get ready. Come on, how many ladies spend a little too much time in front of the mirror? He would get so frustrated. So one particular time, they were in a hurry. They were all together. And he says, Judy, he says, listen, don't spend forever putting your makeup on. We're just going wherever it was. It's no big deal. So she comes downstairs a couple minutes later. He looks at her. He says, on second thought, take all the time you need. (laughs) Right? Like, this is a good thing. But ultimately, 
This kind of external beauty should not define us. It should not consume us. Peter says we're to take care of the hidden person of the heart. Men and women alike, we all have this hidden person of the heart. What in the world is this? This is the real you. The hidden person of the heart. It is the real you. It's the you that God sees. And isn't it possible to look beautiful or handsome on the outside and be ugly and horrendous looking on the inside? This is what the deal was with the Pharisees, the religious elites in Jesus' day. They had fooled everyone around them because they looked so good in their religiosity. Right? I mean, they looked good on the outside and they looked pious and they looked holy, but Jesus called them out. They hated Jesus because He saw through the outward shell. And He saw in the heart and He said, Oh, with your lips you're saying one thing. Your clothing looks like this, but you know what? Your hearts are far from God. So what Peter is saying, listen... It's fine. You want to you wear makeup? Fine. You want to wear jewelry? Fine. You want to braid your hair? Fine. But don't let that be what defines your beauty. That's not the essence of your beauty. I'm grateful that my wife takes time with herself. But oh, I'm so grateful that that, that is not the essence of her beauty. That's what he's saying. Let me just ask you, how much time did you spend getting ready this morning? You just think about it in your mind. Picking out your outfit. Doing your hair. Putting on makeup if you're a lady. Hopefully just ladies. Never know these days, right? Fixing the hair. Brushing your teeth. I mean, just looking nice. Looking in the mirror this way. Then this way. And then taking another mirror. Looking at... Yeah, I look good from back there too, right? That's what I did this morning. I don't know about you, but... Um, right? So, So... You spend a lot of time. Add all of that up. Now think about this. What did you do this morning to prepare your heart for worship? What did you do to, did you spend time in the scriptures? Did you spend time in prayer this morning? Say, oh God, I want to prepare my heart for you. See, we're out of balance, aren't we? We often spend so much time making this shell look good. And very little time making what matters most look good. Peter says, he he goes on to say this, that wives should be known, watch this, notice this word, for their imperishable beauty. Does that word stick out to you? It should if you've been here a few weeks. Because in verse 1, chapter 1, Peter uses that same word when he's talking about our heavenly inheritance. So here's what he's saying. Christian women should be devoted to godliness. Godliness more than physical beauty. Pastor Skip Heitzig said it like this. He said, paint the outside of the house and furnish it with character. I think that's good. What would this imperishable, excuse me, what should this imperishable beauty look like? Let me ask it like this. What are the characteristics of a godly woman? Very quickly, just going to, Move through these. Number one, according to verse two, a godly wife should respect her husband. Men need to feel respected, ladies. In the book, Love and Respect, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. The author says, when a husband feels disrespected, 
it is especially hard to love his wife. And the opposite is also true. When a wife feels unloved, it is especially hard to respect her husband. Ladies, look at me real quick. I know that your husbands, if you're here and you're married, I know that he's not perfect. You're looking at an imperfect husband right here. And Peter, when he's writing these words, he's pinning these words, he's not saying, if your husband's perfect, respect him. No. It's a call to offer grace to an imperfect husband. If we could be perfect, we wouldn't have needed a Savior. Jesus came for imperfect people. A godly wife should respect her husband. Secondly, a godly wife should be pure in conduct. I get that from verse 2 as well. Wife should live in a way that is congruent with the Scriptures, which is totally countercultural. Do you pay attention to what's celebrated amongst women in our culture today? Loose living, crudeness. I think some of these women who are on social media and stuff, and they're the stars that, that are filling our television sets. Like, they're the crudest people. Like, I can't imagine a sailor talking like this, much less a woman. It just... It blows my mind. And this is what's celebrated. Sensuality, sexuality, immodesty. No, Peter says, be pure in conduct. Number three, a godly wife should be gentle. Gentle. This word in the Greek, it comes from a word that means meek. Means meek. Do you know what meekness is? Meekness, ladies, is not weakness. It is not weakness. Some of y'all could, uh, you're not weak. You can take your husbands, I, right? Like, I know. You're not weak. But you're called to be meek. And here's, here's what that means. Meekness is power under control. Power under control. A horse that is bridled is called meek. Horse is powerful, but it's under control. So a gentle spirit describes a wife who is, hear this, a wife who is under the Lord's control. Ladies, that means your words are under God's control. It means your emotions are under God's control. It means your behavior is under God's control. You are meek, power under control. Finally, a godly wife should be quiet. Somebody say, uh-oh. <laughs> Verse 4, this, is, this does not mean what it's been taken to mean at extremes. I, I love the story of the man who told his friend, he said, I, I've not spoken to my wife in 18 months. The friend was a bit appalled. He says, why haven't you spoken to her in 18 months? He said, I don't like to interrupt her. <laughs> to be quiet doesn't mean that wives do not get a voice in the home. The word here means tranquil. Tranquil. This is a woman, hear this, who isn't stirred up by something at all times. Isn't always worked up about something. Isn't always complaining about something. One of my favorite places in Kentucky to visit is Cave Run Lake. How many love to go to the lake during the summer? And I love to go early in the morning and be one of the first ones out on the water before any other boats are out there moving. And I love the stillness of the water, the glassy lake. That's what women are called to be, godly women. Peaceful, tranquil, still, 
That is such a blessing to your husband. It will be such a blessing to him. Submission in the home involves having a gentle and quiet spirit that is respectful, patient, kind, and loving. And if you are married to an unbeliever, this, this goes for everybody, every Christian woman, but if you are married to an unbeliever, this will draw him to the Lord. That is the hope. That is the hope. So we've looked at the call to submission. We've looked at the characteristics of submission. Finally, I want to mention briefly the consistency of submission. Some confusing verses at the end here. When you go verse by verse through the Bible, you don't get to skip over the tough verses. So here we go. For this is how holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Verse 6. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Could somebody please tell Nikki she needs to start referring to me as Lord? No, she doesn't. That's not what he means here. And you are her children, he goes on to say, if you do good and do not fear anything, that is frightening. What in the world is Peter talking about? In the Old Testament days, many godly women, here's what he's saying, exemplified these principles of respect and honor and purity and a gentle and a quiet spirit. Some of them, like Sarah, went so far as to call their husband, hear me, lowercase l, Lord. That is not required to be a godly wife. But in that day, all it meant was respect. It was a, it was a term of respect, term of honor. So Peter's not saying, women, you have to call your husband Lord. All right, just on Father's Day. All right, just on your anniversary, maybe. No, you don't have to do that. That's not the point. It's this, be respectful. It's just a reiteration of respect your husband. And I think here's the point that Peter is making. Remember, these Christians are living amongst really, really pagan people. A culture that is not defined by biblical values. Women in the Roman world were not known for godliness. All right? I, listen, I love, I used, to, I used to love just to read fiction, Greek mythology. And so when they started making Greek mythology movies, like I was really excited until I found out you can't watch any of them. Because it all is really, really bad. Why? Because it shows the culture for what it really was. It's really scary. This is what they're living amongst. This kind of pagan culture like this in the Roman world. Tragic. Here's what's happening. The culture is influencing them. And Peter says, no, 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 no. Don't follow the couples who are around you in your communities. Think back to Sarah, who honored her husband, who was still and quiet and godly. Don't act like these Roman women. Act like the godly ones that you've learned about. Can I just tell you that no matter what our culture says marriage is, the Bible is the one, it's the book, it's the manual for true God-glorifying marriage. And we are to follow the Bible's ways, not the world's ways. No matter how countercultural this is this morning, this is God's ordained way. And He made it. He made us. And He made these rules and He made this kind of system of order. And it's good. He knows more than we do. It's for our good and it's for His glory. So he, Peter's saying to us this morning, the Holy Spirit is saying to us this morning, 
Don't base your relationship off the secular world around you. Look to the Bible to define what a marriage should look like. That goes for friendships. That goes for every area of life. Look to the Bible, not culture, for answers. Then he closes with this last verse that I think he just means Peter is imploring these women not to walk in fear that harm will come upon them. This is a big deal for them, remember. I mean, if they're going to live for Jesus, and, and especially if they have an unbelieving husband, this is a big deal for them. And he says, just trust in the Lord as Sarah did. In closing, let me just draw your attention one more time to verse 4. He says, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, you might underline this, highlight it on your phone, whatever. Which in God's sight is very precious. Ladies, honoring your husband like this and men honoring your wives is not ultimately about that other person. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. Everything we do, it's about Him. Life, the universe is about Him. And great transparency this morning. I told you I've been married 22 years. The first 10 years of my marriage were quite tumultuous. That's the nicest way I can put it. I was miserable. Nikki was miserable. So bad at times, I didn't even want it to get better. But I didn't believe in divorce, so we just stuck it out. And then I realized that my covenant wasn't just to stay with my wife, but it was to love her and honor her and cherish her. I said, God, I want to change. But change was harder. Let me tell you why. It's because there, were so, there was so much water under the bridge that change seemed almost impossible until until the Lord spoke to my heart and, and I realized this that my marriage was not ultimately about the two of us in our horizontal relationship it was about my vertical relationship my relationship with God that's what my marriage is about this is a form of worship not the worship of a wife or a husband oh it's about worship to God it's about honoring Him and when I realized that me being the husband that I'm called to be and Nikki being the wife she's called to be is about Jesus. Oh, it made it so much better, so much easier. And I'm grateful that the Lord has sustained it. So we, we don't have a perfect marriage, but we have a wonderful marriage today. Can't imagine what my life would look like if it had went in another direction. I just want to tell you, I want to encourage you today. Listen, I've been there. If you're miserable in your relationship, I've been there. I have been there. But I want you to know how gracious God is. And here's what I, I came to the conclusion of. If, if God could part the Red Sea, surely He can keep Nikki and I together and do way more than that. He's done more than keep us together. He's given me a bride that I love and adore. Just amazing. May we today be encouraged. Married, single, men, women alike, may we be encouraged to just be better in all of our relationships. Be better Christians. Be more faithful, not for our own glory, not for the sake of just having a better world, though that is a consequence of that. For the sake of Jesus Christ, who gave it all for us. Thank you for listening. 
If you'd like to know more about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or if you have questions about our church, you can email us at info at myrealchurch.org. Real Life Community Church is located at 335 Glendon Avenue in Richmond, Kentucky. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday at 1045 a.m. or Wednesday at 7 p.m. Visit us online at myrealchurch.org.